Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and thank you for joining us on Battle Walks once again as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. It's been busy. We've had lots of things going on, uh, both uh, on the battlefields and also back in our home countries with the, the never-ending battles with COVID. I think we're all getting a little sense of what it must be like to be engaged in a military operation. But uh, just accept our best wishes that, that hopefully this will come to an end fairly soon and, uh, and we can all back, get back to some sort of normal life. Um, hopefully this is providing a good distraction. I know it certainly is for Pete and I, and we're, we're looking forward to getting out and actually walking the battlefields together again in the future. But in the meantime, we can do it virtually through the medium of the podcast. And Pete, thank you so much for coming back again. No, great to be here, Matt. Uh, next best thing to walking uh, on the ground itself. This is one of our favourite places to walk to, I know, for both of us. We're going to continue a walk that we started many, many weeks ago. Go back and listen to the first part of our walk through the town of Ypres in Belgium. Just an iconic place, one of my favourite places on the battlefields. I know it's close to your heart too, Pete. And this is the second part of that walk we're going to explore probably a, a few of the lesser-known sites in sort of the back half of the town. It's a, it's a great spot, isn't it? Oh, it is. And as I've mentioned previously, it's it's probably the place I miss the most in this period that we're in now of uh, of, of non-travel. Um, having normally go there at least uh, once every uh, every couple of weeks to uh, be denied the opportunity to go there and take people around. Uh, yeah, really missing the place. As we mentioned in a few previous podcasts, we are going to launch tours from the UK as soon as we as soon as the UK and France allow travel again. Uh, you will have the opportunity to travel with Pete Smith to actually walk this ground with him, which is going to be very exciting. Um, so stand by. We'll, we'll make announcements. It'll be on the website battlewalks.co.uk, which hasn't actually launched at this moment of speaking because we're still putting the finishing touches on. But watch this space and uh, and hopefully very, very soon we'll be able to, uh, to run tours again and, and you'll be able to walk that ground with Pete Smith if you're coming from the UK. So that's very exciting. Um, but let's... 
let's get started. Let's do a virtual walk around the, the, the second part of our Epa walk. And Pete, we're starting where we finished the last walk, which was in Ramparts Cemetery down near the Little Gate. So as I, as I said, you, you, you probably want to listen to the first part of this, uh, the, the first episode in this series from many weeks ago to make sense of it. But we're starting where we finished the last one in Rampart Cemetery. And, and we, we ended the last walk on Rampart Cemetery, so we don't need to discuss that. So Pete, where are we going once we've left Rampart Cemetery? Well, we're going to carry on around the ramparts. So the moat is on our, our left-hand side. Um, we've got a, a grassy bank, but it's a, it's a lowering grassy bank. So we were we were fairly high up on the top of the ramparts. As we uh, as we move along and get to the where the ramparts will eventually disappear, because they were removed uh, around this side of the town. But for a uh, for a uh, the the next uh, few hundred meters, we've still got uh, uh, a walkway, and we're going to be looking at something which is um, fairly unusual, really, and most people don't even notice. But there are two um, blockhouses on top of the ramparts, and so that's where we're going to stop next. Next, uh, in front of these two uh, pillboxes, blockhouses, pillar boxes. Uh, what do we call them? Uh, interesting. I read an article recently that was actually looking at the history of the names of these things, and uh, apparently it started off as a pillar box. And if you imagine a British pillar box, uh, where you post your letters, uh, it's got a slot at the top for putting your letters in. That's where the name c- came from, this pillar box, but it was very quickly changed to pillboxes. And so we see pillbox is the, is the term that we generally use nowadays. These are interesting ones, aren't they, Pete? Because they date from quite late in the war and they reflect the the panic, not the panic that was going on, but the desperation that was going on to stop the Germans at the start of 1918. So a couple of machine gun posts put in by the British to, to try and defend Ypres from the Germans in what they knew was coming, the big spring offensive of March 1918. Yeah, these are very interesting, actually, because these were kit form um, pillboxes uh, designed by a chap called Sir Ernest Moyer, who was uh, uh, in the uh, Ministry of Munitions. And he basically designed something that could be built elsewhere and, and brought to the front and, and, and clipped together and more concrete poured to protect it. And, and that's, uh, that's what these were. They were uh, uh, brought by the Royal Engineers um, and, uh, and built where we, see, where we see them now. Interestingly, they were actually used. Uh, you won't imagine that everything near Ypres is too far behind the lines. But in 1918, these were actually saw, saw combat. The guns were fired from, uh, from within them. Uh, and uh, they also took a, a lot of counter uh, battery fire and machine gun fire from the uh, from the Germans. This is in uh, 1918 during their sp- spring offensive. Uh, we even know who built them. It was the 105th uh, Field Engineers. Um, with uh, those are Americans actually, the American 105th Field Engineers, who had been attached to the 57th uh, British uh, Royal Engineers Field Company. Um, and they they were the people that uh, put them together. The, at this period, the Americans, uh, are for training purposes, are working with uh, with uh, our engineers, and so we even know who uh, who built them, and and completed eventually by the two hundred eighth Field Company Royal Engineers uh, as well as well. They had another kind of interesting aspect, and they did a lot of trials with these when they were building them, that they did worry that the machine guns firing within, because it's fairly compact in there, it's about six feet uh, by six feet, um, and uh, they were worried that the fumes would build up from the firing, uh, from the gases, from the carbon monoxide, from the machine guns as they fired, and so they did a lot of trials as to whether the gas would clear or whether it would overcome the men firing them, and it was discovered that uh, so long as they just put a, a little, uh, like a damper on the end of the barrel, it stopped the fumes from coming back into the uh, into the pillbox and uh, and so it was it was suitable and so the, yeah they were they were used in in anger 
Um, normally between uh, 3,000 to 6,000 rounds fired at any one at any one time. So, so yeah, very successful. I don't know about the fumes uh, overcoming the men, but the noise certainly would have uh, would have rendered them insensible in a short amount of time. <laughs> a, uh, a Vickers machine gun firing in that cramped <laughs> concrete little tube would have been uh, absolutely deafening. I always think there's a slight air of desperation about these pillboxes, which I think reflects what was going on at the time because. A pillbox on its own, there's not a lot of opportunity for defences around them. You couldn't build trenches and other defensive networks. And a pillbox on its own, if, if the Germans were advancing quickly, um, would hold them up briefly, but then obviously be overcome pretty swiftly. So it just does show that the desperation that was in the air to try and build defences wherever in an appropriate position to try and hold back those Germans in the, in the spring offensive. Indeed. And in fact, one of the aspects of uh, when they built these, uh, they had all-round fire because they had basically a rotating cage inside, which meant that uh, there was a, uh, it's hard to describe it, but there was a basically a metal ring inside that, that ran around. So you could you could turn around the aperture to wherever you wanted it, where the gun's firing through and be protected by the steel uh, behind you as, as you moved it around. And the gun, in fact, hung from the ceiling. So it was in a, in a bracket that hung from the ceiling. So it, it turned round with you. So it was it was very, very clever, which uh, the whole idea of that, I suppose, was that if the Germans moved position, they got closer, they even got into the town, then you could spin this thing round and, and fire in any direction. So uh, I think it's part of that. It's part of trying to build something quickly that gave you all-round defence. I think we should be thankful for the couple of Tommies inside that they never had to put that uh, that process into action because <laughs> I don't think the Germans would have taken too kindly to the two blokes holding out <laughs> when everyone else had surrendered. But um, I like them. I like this corner of the ramparts. It's an interesting little part. The, the the other part near the Menon Gate is quite busy, and this one tends to be quiet, usually only local people that walk down here. And you also come across a couple of um, casemates from the original uh, the original construction of the ramparts, where they used to have big old guns in there and ammunition and everything I think else. They were powder stores. Yeah, yeah. I think they were powder stores. Some of them. Yeah. And then uh, also the uh, the well, the more modern, not the modern now, but the uh, the First World War connection with the little pillboxes. It's a really good area. I, I really enjoy this part of the walk. But we're going to carry on past the pillboxes, Pete, and um, where are we going to head to next? Well, we're going to look across to where the railway station uh, still is. I was going to say used to be, but it's actually still the railway The railway station's in the same location that it's always been. Uh, built in the 1850s with the faster trains uh, arriving 1854. Um, in 1870, connected to uh, the mainland, so you could actually go all the way into to France. No longer, sadly. Well, you can, but in one direction, so I better describe, in one direction, effectively, it's going to Cauterick, and the other direction, it's going to, to Poppering. So it's only a very local, uh, short line, and you have to change trains to go almost any, anywhere else. But very, very useful for the old battlefield tourists, and uh, certainly I've used it multiple times. It's um, interesting, of course, the station's been completely rebuilt, and now it's rather ugly and concrete and there's, there's nothing historic about it. Because as you mentioned, um, you explained this very well in our podcast about the attack on Armion's prison um, that we did several weeks ago, um, the importance of the railway station in Armion, because railway stations always copped an absolute battering in both world wars because they were just so central to the functioning of the town, weren't they? They were indeed. And funny enough, I was trying to do some research, as I always do on these uh, these podcasts before we go uh, before we broadcast. And uh, one of the things I was looking at, I was very much aware that it was totally destroyed in 1914-18, flattened. But when you go and have a look at the railway station, it doesn't look like it's from the 1930s. It looks very, very modern. So my presumption would be that it was flattened again in 1940 as the, as the Germans arrived, or perhaps in 1944 as the Germans left. Uh, but I couldn't find any any reference to 
to it, uh, but I'm fairly certain that the that the what's there now, this very uh, much as you described a, a very bland concrete uh, uh, railway station, is not in that period between the two world wars. I think it's post Second World War, so I suspect it was it was either flattened or very badly damaged in the Second World War as well. Interestingly, there was uh, between the wars a, a British tank stood in the square outside the uh, the railway station. I've seen photos of this tank. I'm standing there as a bit of a, a bit of an impromptu monument to the uh, to the men who served there, because of course this is where a lot of tanks were brought in that served in the salient. They were unloaded at the railway station, uh, but uh, presumably it wasn't there in photos of the Second World War of the railway station. So presumably the crafty Germans took it away when they occupied the town and, and scrapped it for the metal. It's it's a great shame. They scrapped most of the relics that had been scattered about the whole battlefield. So I'm not just even talking in Ypres or in fact Belgium, but there were relics that. To your 1930s tourist uh, or, or a pilgrim to the battlefields would have, uh, have flocked to go and see, uh, you know, barrels of guns and tanks and uh, all, all sorts of uh, of the bits and bobs left from the battlefields, and in most cases the Germans hoovered those up and uh, yeah, and uh, melted them down for scrap. Well, we're going to uh, walk down now the ramparts end, and we're going to walk off the ramparts. We're going to take a right turn into Elverdingsestraat. I think I've got the pronunciation. <laughs> how did I go? How did I go with that one? Um, I know we struggle oh, with the good. French it, it pronunciations, Pete. How about the Flemish ones? Yeah, no, it was good. It was probably better than my attempt, and I was kind of hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> El- Elverdingsestraat. <laughs> I love the names of the towns in yeah, So, uh, so we're going to turn into this street, and we're going to walk along here. It's, it's an interesting one because even though we're coming in through um, buildings that have been rebuilt since the end of the war, um, this was the road. The roads are as the as the original. Um, footprint of the of the town before it was destroyed and so we can walk in the footsteps of the troops because this was a road that the troops would commonly march on as they came into the town obviously they're trying to keep the troops out of the 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 dangerous sectors to the east but they uh you know this was a road that the troops marched in so as you walk along this road you're actually walking in the footsteps of troops that marched into Ypres and we're going to keep walking until we come to well the Commonwealth War Graves office Pete which is the the, sort of the main office for the Commonwealth War Graves in Ypres which is uh up here a little way yeah, well, we were just having a chat about it, and uh, because uh, the Commonwealth Wargraves have been uh, changing quite a lot of uh, of what they do in recent years, and uh, I had to check to make sure that uh, it still is. It's, it's it was always known as the Northern Europe uh, Area Headquarters of the Commonwealth Wargraves. Um, I think it still is. Uh, it, it appears to be looking on on their website. Um, it's been enhanced now, of course, within uh, the town of Epes itself, because they they now have a visitor centre which is right beside the Menin Gate. So we won't be going up there today. I think we may have possibly covered it in one of our previous podcasts. But yeah, there's a, a new visitors uh, centre, so that is where most people head to. They no longer come down here and, and knock on the on the door here. So I think uh, this is still working, but it is purely just administration uh, headquarters. And uh, yeah, you can now go to the new information centre. And a, a nod to Commonwealth War Graves, they do um, they do fantastic work, and it's an evolving institution. It's changed a lot in recent years, and it had to in many ways. Um, but I, you know, I think they do a great job, and the, the resources they have online are excellent. Um, I'm, I'm I think they're in a good place. How how are you feeling? I suppose it's a <laughs> diplomatic question, Pete. But how are you feeling about the work that Commonwealth War Graves are currently doing? That would uh, we could do a complete podcast on the Commonwealth War Graves, and we may we may do that by themselves by itself. Uh, they do a, they do a good job. I mean, you don't have to look at the uh, the cemeteries; uh, they're just 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 superb, um, uh, and they've got a lot on their plate. And of course, they're on a fairly tight budget as well. So so yeah, I think I think they do a superb job, uh, and they are they're broadening what they do considerably with a new. Uh, uh, 
what do we call it? Information center in in, uh, in Aris. It's not called an information. No, it's center. called what the CWGC call Experience at their Experience at their headquarters the, in Aris. This is that. That's yeah, the, their yeah. international headquarters, or at least their European headquarters, isn't it? In, uh, in yeah. Aras. So yeah. So it's um, it's where they cut the uh, the stones worldwide. So all of the stones for, for worldwide are cut there. So yeah. So I'm, we're going off on a tangent here, but it's um, yeah. They they do a, do a fantastic. We need a little chime or something, um, or a little bugle call or something. You know, a little. What are they called in radio? They call it a sting when they do a little announcement before you go off in a new sector. Something like you know, Pete's tangents. <laughs> Yeah. But they're good. They'll love them, Pete. They're my favourite part of the podcast. So please carry on. So yes, Commonwealth Wargrave's experience in Arras is well worth seeing. Yeah. So it is indeed. And uh, yeah, and so yeah, they're doing an, ex- an excellent job. And uh, yeah. Interesting. I, I was just thinking about something as we were talking about the cemeteries. For those of you that uh, have visited and do come to the cemeteries on, on the Western Front, have a look occasionally because you'll find that the old Commonwealth Wargrave's gardeners. Uh, sadly, when they're passed, they are buried uh, amongst the soldiers. You you will find uh, in the corners of the cemeteries a slightly different headstone, and it'll be one of the gardeners, because a lot of them asked to be buried amongst uh, the men that they were caring for. So it's one of the things I, I try and point out is when we when we know there's a, a gardener buried in, in this military cemetery to go across and go and have a look at him. It's Some of those connections are wonderful, you know, with the, the people, particularly between the wars or during the Second World War, who... Still worked in the gardens. Wonderful stories about these these men who were still committed to the graves long after the fighting had ended. And look, I do what you know. The uh, Commonwealth War Graves is changing, and some people like it, some people don't. The one thing I always find wonderful about war, the War Graves people is just how approachable they are. You can go and knock on the door of the Commonwealth War Graves office and say, "Look, I'm just in town for a day or two. Uh, can you tell me where my great uncle is buried, or you know, his tine cut open, or where can I get a cup of tea at this this cemetery? You know, and they are very accommodating. And I found that across the world. You know, when I've been in Turkey and Gallipoli, you know, calling, you always just having a chat to the war graves gardeners or the you know the, the people that work there. They're very very approachable. They're very respectful that that their job is to preserve these memories in these cemeteries for visitors like us. So they're they're always very approachable and and, and very lovely people. Uh, yeah, and we should we should add indeed agree with all of that, and we should add, of course, that at Tynecott and also uh, at Teepval on the Somme here, that they now have uh, uh, interns who are there permanently in normal times. I should add um, to to help you find uh, what you're looking for. So they the, they actually employ people now uh, on in those two sites, Tynecott Cemetery and uh, at the Teepval Memorial on the Somme. Well, so definitely call into the Commonwealth Wargrave office if you're walking down the street. You can just even just have a chat, and tell them the good work they're doing, and if you if you de- and definitely if you need information about the cemeteries and and the places you want to visit. Of course, they also do a wonderful job online. So if you go to cwgc.org, you can find absolutely everything you need to plan your trip to the battlefields long before you leave home. But we're going to keep walking past the Commonwealth Wargrave's office down to the looming red brick building, Pete, which is fairly clearly some sort of some sort of, uh, of prison, some sort of institution designed to keep people inside um, and still working, still a working prison. It, <laughs> we had the same discussion again in our Army on podcast that the Army on prison is still a prison and the E-Prison is still a prison as well. You wouldn't think in these little towns they'd have such a requirement for, for, for lockups as they do, but um, <laughs> this is still a prison, but with a pretty strong connection to the war as well. Indeed, just a quick uh, um, whiz over the the prison. Built in 1873 and opened in 1876. Um, It expanded after 1919, uh, taking over the the Romand Centre in Cauterick because it it had been, the prison there had been destroyed and so Romand prisoners uh, ended up in, in Ypres. 
um, and uh, currently has 48 cells, I believe. I love I love your descriptions of the of prisons, Pete. Thank you. Unexpected, I think, for people who tune into a military history podcast, but, uh, but always good information. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting spot. I mean, it, it's completely changed now. Obviously, it's been upgraded and turned into a modern facility. But during the war, the you know the original walls were here, and and um, this was probably the only the only substantial building or group of buildings in Ypres that that was used continuously throughout the war because it could withstand shell fire. And I, I I love that Rudyard Kipling visited on his tour of the battlefields after soon after the First World War. He stood in front of the uh, the prison, noted in his diary that his quote was, "It was a fine example of resistance to shell fire of thick walls, if they are thick enough." So um, it's not particularly scientific, but if you want to build walls that will resist shell fire, just make them bloody thick. That was effectively the uh, the uh, the takeaway from uh, from his visit. But yeah, but it was used for medical facilities. It was used to store things, headquarters, you name it. Was was in there at one time or another. Do you have information, Peter, about how it was actually used during the war? Well, I think. I think the most important person uh, that was based there was the town major. So uh, for those that don't know what a town major is, he's effectively the military mayor. So he's the he's the man that basically runs the town for the military. And if the civilian population uh, is in place, which for most of the war it was not, um, but for those locations where they were, then the town major would actually uh, deal with the mayor uh, and they would work together and, and just organising things like which buildings are going to be used as barracks, which buildings are going to be off limits to certain troops and which direction the flow of traffic would come in. They would also organise the military police in the town. And so town major, very uh, fairly important job. He doesn't have, actually have to be the rank of major. It was just a title known as the town major. Um, uh, and he, anyway, he based himself in, in the prison. The other thing that was in the prison, probably most notably, was a very large, um, well, really an advanced dressing station. I was going to say a hospital, but we we're a bit too close to the front line. So I'll say a dressing station. And you know, giving treatment to men who who had, had been treated initially on the battlefields, you know, in the, in the casualty clearing stations and the regimental aid posts, and they'd been brought back here. And it was from here that they would have been sent by ambulance or, or road or rail back to even larger hospitals near the coast. Because of that, you can imagine a lot of very badly wounded men were coming in and sadly, large numbers of them died. And so three cemeteries were established near the near the prison buildings to uh, to to accommodate the bodies of men who died while being treated in the dressing station, and um, interestingly, the uh, the largest of these cemeteries was simply known as the cemetery north of the prison, and um, so at the end of the war, there was a lot of bodies uh, buried in in these three three cemeteries, and they were consolidated, uh, which is going to be a, a stop we've got coming up on the walk. But um, the, the interesting anecdote about that is that uh, the the they renamed them, of course, because the uh, the they felt that the families wouldn't like the the thought of the word prison being used in the name of uh, of the cemetery where their loved one was buried. So the, the, the cemeteries were renamed to Ypres Reservoir Cemetery, which is actually where we're going to head next. But um, but before we get there, Pete, any, any last things to say about the prison? No. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so we're going to leave the prison. I, there used to be a um, there used to be an empty block here, which I enjoyed just near the prison, just just not far down on the street. There was an empty block in between all the houses, and. Um, it used to be a fascinating spot to walk because it was one of the few places. This was told to me by our good friend Tom Morgan, so we can refer to him if it's not completely accurate, but I'm very sure it is. He's a very knowledgeable man. He's a very knowledgeable man. I'm sure it will be. And he yeah. showed me, and I'd, I'd never even noticed it, but uh, it was, it was, in his words, the only block, the only original block in Ypres that was never 
where the house wasn't rebuilt effectively. I know there are some others, but but I certainly get his point. And uh, apparently, a legal dispute at the end of the war about ownership and construction meant that uh, that they um, they they couldn't rebuild the house that was built there. And it was actually quite quite an interesting spot that you just walk along the street with all the rebuilt houses, and there was literally a perfect rectangle of of ground where the house had not been built. And again, an, an interesting in some ways linked to the war, that uh, that this was uh, this was a place where a house was not rebuilt. Uh, last time I was there, they were, they were building on it, though. So I think, uh, obviously, they sorted out a century later, they sorted out the legal issues and did build a house there. Interestingly, that is very common uh, here in these little villages on the Somme battlefields. Uh, and you can see very clearly where families came back and had their houses rebuilt or rebuilt them themselves. Um, and you get house, 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 a very obvious gap house house obvious gap uh and those gaps are still there and very often the the neighbor has now bought it and keeps his chickens on there but the house has not been rebuilt and that's because those families didn't ever come back and if nobody comes back then there's no need to rebuild the house and the houses were not rebuilt so so it's very common here uh, on the Somme battlefield we should definitely do a future podcast about reconstruction work pete in these villages because it's a fascinating story I mean, you I should write these down yeah. so we know what we're going to be doing. Yeah, can, someone listening, can you please make a list and then send it to us of all the things we say we should do a future podcast? There's, there's certainly no shortage of topics, which is uh, the, the delightful thing about visiting the battlefields. So we, we are going to head down down to the cemetery, formerly known as Cemetery North of the Prison and now known as Ypres Reservoir Cemetery. And it's an interesting one, this one, Pete, because it looks like a concentration cemetery. It looks like a post-war cemetery. But of course, as we've just discussed, it wasn't. It was it was begun next to the hospital during the war. Um, contained a lot of graves too, over a thousand graves in this cemetery by the end of the war. That's a that's a big old number of graves for a uh, for a for a wartime cemetery. Uh, it is, and you have to actually look and think. Well, this is actually in the town. I wonder what was here previously. So uh, it must have been open parkland uh, pre- previous uh, to being turned into a cemetery, because you've got to literally bury bury all the soldiers. Um, th- there was obviously some concentration, but it's concentration, uh, as you mentioned, of other cemeteries close by. So that's the only concentration that takes place. So hence, what we do get here are the greater proportion of the men here we actually know who they are which is uh, uh actually that's not strictly true i'm just looking at the uh, at the numbers here so i'll just i'll read out the numbers and surprisingly 2613 soldiers buried or commemorated here and 1034 unidentified and that's quite interesting when you think that most of the soldiers that were buried in the cemetery or close to the cemetery actually died within the town you would have expected more of them to be able to be identified but I suspect due to shell fire maybe the markers were damaged and uh, they no longer knew who some of them some of them were so interesting uh, that, that surprises me that how many uh, are actually uh, unidentified unknown there's some um, interesting graves here as well I'm going to highlight just a couple of them but um there's a, an interesting uh, Australian uh, Captain Eric Kerr is buried here for the 11th Field Ambulance, uh, and I, I always go to his grave because he was one of three brothers who served during the war, uh, and uh, and he was uh, so he was a doctor, uh, he had a medical degree, and uh, in the words of his widow, he had every every prospect of a brilliant future. So another one of these fine, upstanding young blokes who was destined for greatness, who he lost during the war, and you know we'll never. We'll never truly be able to measure the the price that was paid in just the, the the bright young men who would have done great things had they been given the chance that we lost during the war. But um, his brother Alan was a lieutenant uh, who was only twenty one. Um, the yeah, Eric, who we're visiting at this his grave here, was twenty five. His younger brother Alan was only twenty one when he was killed at Pozier in July nineteen sixteen. 
uh, so a year before his brother, uh, and they had a third brother who uh, was who served with the British in the Royal Army Medical Corps. So obviously a very strong medical family, uh, and so their brother won the DSO actually serving with the the medical corps in the British Army. So uh, you know, a, 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 just a nice example of a family dedicated to um, to you know, medicine and to to medical services and. Two of the three brothers giving their life during the war. It's 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 a it's an all too common tale, isn't it, Pete? When you see brothers uh, in cemeteries, um, you know, it's often you see brothers in the same cemetery. Uh, let alone the story of brothers killed and buried in different cemeteries. Yeah, and, and of course that's uh, is probably one of the uh, the most famous stories uh, out of this cemetery uh, are the Knott brothers. Um, uh, two brothers, uh, James, uh, had been killed on the Somme on the first of July, serving with the the Tenth West Yorks. Um, in fact, the 10th West Yorks uh, took the heaviest uh, casualties on that first uh, of July, the highest proportion of, uh, of deaths within the battalion. Uh, and the other one, uh, Henry, um, being killed with a 9th Northumberland Fusiliers uh, in the September of 1915 here on the Salient. Now, interesting, you'd expect them, one to be buried here and one to be buried uh, on the on the Somme battlefield, which in fact he was. Uh, but after the war, uh, the father was a fairly influential chap, Sir James Knott, uh, is a major benefactor of St George's uh, Memorial Church, which we're going to be uh, talking about uh, as our last uh, stopping point uh, today. Um, and he, and I have to say it like this, because I think there must have been an element of this, he put pressure on the Commonwealth war graves to have his brother exhumed uh, and to uh, be moved uh, uh, to, to have both the brothers, to have his son, should I say, um, exhumed and uh, to be uh, interred uh, alongside his brother. Um, and that happened, and uh, they're brought here. But I just find it terribly, terribly irritating. I can't help it, but I do is that they're not side by side. And you think that with all that pressure and all that effort in exhuming uh, uh, James and bringing him all the way from the Somme to Ypres and burying him, that they would be side by side. And they're not. We often describe them as being side by side in the cemetery, but you only have to go to the cemetery to look and they're not, they're not together. And I think that's a great shame that they didn't manage to actually uh, to get them uh, 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 together in the, in, the, uh, in the cemetery. But uh, it's an interesting story because the Commonwealth War Graves didn't really do that. They did didn't move people about. You can imagine if they'd started doing that, because there were lots of brothers killed, thousands of brothers uh, uh, killed, pairs of brothers or more. And of course, they'd all quite like, the families would all quite like to have them buried uh, uh, together. And so it was something that the Commonwealth War Graves didn't do. But in this case, I think it is because of who he was, he was able to to, to bring pressure to bear uh, and had his two sons uh, buried together. Almost together. It's a very um, a rare occurrence. Commonwealth War Graves did not move graves. It, it they is. had they had thousands and thousands of requests to have gro- graves moved. Exactly this sort of thing. Oh, his brother is buried in another cemetery. Can we have them brought together? Um, family members just simply, you know, people wanted them to be buried in different cemeteries than they were. They steadfastly refuse all requests. This is I, I don't know of another one, Pete, where the, where it's demonstrated that they um, that after the war they actually went through with this. Do you know of any other examples of where they moved graves at the request of a family? I don't, off the top of my head, but I know there are a couple of other cases. Uh, the only other thing I came across uh, several years ago was where the Commonwealth War Graves, I won't go into the whole story because it, it takes too long, it's fascinating, but where the Commonwealth War Graves actually named 
a, an unknown soldier as uh, a relative because the the family had put so much pressure on them to identifying their their relative that they crumbled and literally picked an unknown soldier and said oh for god's sake just let's tell the family this is him and and basically that's what they did and it just made you wonder you know, how many other cases there are like that so uh, where they where they, uh, they crumbled under pressure this this one only came to light so I'm, I'm in danger of telling the whole story here this one only came to light when research was done in recent years on this grave because somebody believed that the naming was wrong, that this grave belonged to another person. And utterly bizarrely, they were able to prove that the person buried there was in fact somebody else. And in doing that, they discovered the story. And that's why we know the story of this name just being added to this grave. Uh, uh, I didn't explain that very well, and it's too complicated to explain in this. But I can feel another podcast coming on. But um, yeah, it's a, it is an interesting story. No, I think we understood it, Pete. And it's um, yeah, fascinating story again. The the little uh, the little pearls of information that that I didn't know. I wasn't aware of that at all. And um, just extraordinary some of the the politics that went on with these things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um. There's also a um British Victoria Cross uh, winner buried in this cemetery, um, and uh, fairly senior. Do you, do you have his details? Yep, uh, um, Brigadier General F. A. Maxwell, uh, VC. He had actually, uh, if I remember rightly, he awarded his Victoria Cross uh, during the Boer War, so he he wasn't awarded it during the First World War, um, and he he died of uh, he died of wounds on the twenty first of September, uh, nineteen seventeen, uh, age forty six. So, uh, relatively speaking, for a lot of the young chaps, he was he was uh, getting on a bit. Um, I haven't got the details of actually where or uh, where he was killed, but um, I suspect by shellfire. But uh, but I don't know um, uh, off the top of my head. But one of those things to note again: a brigadier general that is a high rank, and the, the numbers of generals that were killed during the First World War just extraordinary. Um, and again, let's do everything we can to shatter this myth of the chateau general, you know, tucked up safe in his warm chateau while his men were out in the mud dying um it's just not true and the the numbers of of very very senior officers that were killed in the first world war are are quite extraordinary and maxwell is an excellent example uh, of that at uh, reservoir cemetery so definitely visit his grave while you're there as well we are going to leave the cemetery now and head down to the last stop on our walking tour which is just down the road a bit little bit further st george's memorial church a lovely little place peter quite extraordinary little place A, a church that was built in the 1920s really for two main purposes, I think you'd say, for families and war graves workers who were British. So it's a, it's a Church of England church. So for the for the families of British war graves workers who were in Ypres doing the work of constructing the cemeteries and rebuilding the town, uh, but also, of course, for the pilgrims that were coming over, the many, the many thousands and thousands of families that came over. And I know we've talked a lot about these pilgrims, but it's a fascinating part of the story that the UK was fairly accessible uh, to France and Belgium. And thousands of people came over after the war to visit the graves of their lost sons. Well, if we work on the theory that uh, these, these are, it's very broad brush, but 500,000 uh, British and Commonwealth troops uh, who died in the three battles uh, for Ypres uh, during, during uh, the war... Um, well, a large proportion of those those families will eventually want to come over to to visit uh, as pilgrims, uh, um, and still do. They're still coming now, um, and many of them uh, who were religious wanted a, a church, a Church of England a church. Of course, lots of Catholic churches, uh, Saint Saint Martin's, which we talked about in the uh, first part of the walk around deep, um, very close. 
uh, but uh, a Protestant church, a Church of England church, e- extraordinary. There, there, there isn't another one in the in the whole area uh, from where I live uh, all the way to uh, to Weep and beyond in both directions. No Church of England church, as you'd expect, really, you would have to say. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's um, it was necessary for those gardens. It was necessary for the pilgrims. Um, and it just felt the right thing to do to have something in the in the town. And so there was a big campaign uh, in the 1920s to uh, to to have this uh, this church uh, built. Uh, Sir John French, uh, who who gets the title Earl of uh, of Epe, uh, he will uh, be very much uh, involved in, in the raising of the the money. The land was given by the town, so we didn't have to have to pay for that. Uh, Field Marshal Lord Plummer laid the uh, the foundation stone on the twenty fourth of July, nineteen twenty seven, and it was completed and consecrated by nineteen twenty twenty nine. Even the architect, uh, Sir Reginald uh, Blomfield, who uh, who had designed the Menin Gate, uh, he was the guy that de- designed the church as well. And I have to say, the, the most fascinating thing is, is just recently it's had a, a, a little tower and bells uh, put in it, uh, and that was only uh, during these uh, the, the recent centenary years. Um, uh, so uh, we now have a peal of uh, a peal of bells that uh, uh, is is capable of being rung in the church uh, as well. And I think that was inaugurated in 2018 um uh, so uh, uh, yeah so so well worth going on on a sunday to listen listen to the bells being rung as well and of course if you're there any other day of the week the the most extraordinary aspect of st george's is that funded completely by donations from people back in the uk and and across the commonwealth across the empire at the time and so therefore it's filled with memorials to men and units and every surface of the church every pew Every kneeling cushion is just a memorial to a unit or a man or or people who served and died. The windows, the regimental standards hanging from the ceiling. It's just an extraordinary place. It's it's a go there if you're not religious, just simply because it's such an incredible collection of individual memorials. It's really quite fascinating, and again, unique, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, well, all the chairs, all the seats, everything in there, every single one has a, a little plaque on commemorating a person or a, or a regiment. It's just extraordinary. And in fact, it's a little place that you can go into and thinking you're going to be in and out in 10 minutes and half an hour later, you're still in there and going up and down the uh, the pews and, and the chairs, reading all the little plaques on the brass plaques. And uh, you're realizing that these are all all, all commemorating the sons of, of people who donated money to the, the building of the church. So it's a, oh, it's an extraordinary place to go to and one that you'll need to allocate a little bit more time than, than you imagine. Um, there's also an organ in there, and quite often, uh, if you get the timings right, you'll find the organist practicing in there, and you can listen to the to the music. And uh, yeah, they have services every Sunday. Sadly, not at the moment. It's not even open at the moment because of, of COVID. But normally, it opens at nine thirty and closes uh, at five, I think, in the summer and at four p.m. in the in, in the winter. So I always I always try to pop in there. There's also a nice little thing. There's a very good bookshop two to two or three doors further down as well, which I always call in. A, uh, as well, have a have a look in there. It's a great spot. So pop a couple of uh, euros in the um, in the collection box as well when you go in, just to to help because they do great work. There's a lot of good, interesting services. There's usually something going on there to commemorate the war, and the, the, it's a, just a really lovely little spot. Again, a unique spot on the battlefields, and really well worth visiting. That um, pretty much brings us to the end of the walking tour, Pete. Although I did want to say, as you head back to the main square. One, this is, I'm actually throwing this at Pete. We didn't even discuss talking about this, but there's, on the right is something I think we should discuss just before you get back to the main square, is the, um, the, the, a town memorial, a town war memorial, which I always thought was a memorial to Belgian troops 
um, who had been killed in the area. But it's a little bit more than that because it's called the it's 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 the Victims of War Memorial. It's it's quite beautiful. It's it's got sculptures of of Nike, the goddess of victory, placing a wreath on the head of a dead Belgian soldier and a beautiful Belgian lion crouched on it. It's a really quite an extraordinary memorial. Um, and I was re- doing some research about this recently and found that it's actually got quite an interesting story because it's supposed to, it says that it's dedicated to the the soldiers and the civilians of Ypres that were killed during both world wars. Um, but a quick glance at it demonstrates that almost every name, well, every name on it except for one is a male name. So it, it, it can't be to the civilians of the town as well. Um, the, the only female name on there is a nurse who is buried nearby in a cemetery nearby. So it certainly does suggest it's a military memorial and perhaps just like the, the memorials in the, the little villages of France, perhaps it's just a, simply a memorial to the men from the town who went off and were killed during the war. But quite an extraordinary memorial, Pete. Easy to miss. Yep. Yeah, it is. Um, well, it's easy to miss until you know it's there because it is, it, as you described it, it's big. It is a, it is a, a big uh, bronze memorial and, and and is interesting. And I think you're right. I think the names on it are those of, of the chaps that uh, sadly left the town and didn't ever return. But I think its secondary use, even though it doesn't say so, is commemorating the townspeople who uh, who also uh, died in, in the town uh, in, in both world wars. And one of the things, I'm not sure if we mentioned it in the first post- podcast, but Sadly, over two hundred of the uh, of the uh, townspeople died uh, during the uh, the Second World War as the as the Germans arrived in nineteen forty. So, uh, uh, so yeah, th- there was a considerable loss in the Second World War as well. Well, this takes us back to the the main square where we started the first walk around uh, around Ypres, and uh, great opportunity to grab some souvenirs and chocolates in the shops, and then settle in in one of the great, the really the best part of visiting Ypres, settling into one of the beautiful bars and restaurants on the main square for a wonderful meal and several large glasses of Belgian beer. It really is a lovely place in late summer as the sun sets and the people scurry about the, the market square, just a wonderful place to sit and reflect on a great day on the battlefields and um, just an extraordinary place. I love Ypres in case you can't tell from the, the tone in my voice. I, I love Ypres. I always enjoy going back there. It is, it is my favorite place to go on the battlefields and I feel very strongly connected with the town and its people. You must even more so, Pete. Oh, I think I think I mean your description of sitting on the square is spot on uh, because there's also always something going on. You often find that a, a brass band will have set up in the square, or there'll be a, an orchestra or or something, and uh, you know even beach volleyball you get uh, in the in the summer. So you just never know what's going to be going on. It's certainly it's a very public place. It's also a car park as you'd expect, but uh, it's a public space and there's always something going on. And uh, even if it's just watching the people, as most people do, you you sit down in the bar with a, a nice cold uh, beer and uh, and watch life uh, pass by and until until the, uh, the the late hours it's a, it, it's a it's a great a great place beach volleyball in the summer and uh, christmas markets in the winter it's uh, it's a really a really lovely place so as is the whole town pete it's been wonderful thank you once again for walking with us on this battlefield walk yep looking forward to actually getting back there in real life thanks pete see you next week Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.